Good morning, Grace. It is a beautiful morning out today. I think I tried to do every single outdoor activity that I could name yesterday, and, and the sun just started coming down on me as I was trying to finish him up, uh, enjoying the outdoors and just the beautiful weather that we had yesterday. If you are new with us today, uh, we're in the midst of a series we've titled Just Lead, and the gist of it is learning to live through transitions, tragedies, and triumphs. And today we're going to look at one of the greatest triumphs in the Bible. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, which is all about transitions, triumphs, and tragedies and how we navigate them, how God has led his people through a season where they're facing a number of these things. And we've been comparing and contrasting characters throughout and the principles God teaches us. So if you're new to the Bible, there's a Bible or a hardcover Bible in the chairs in front of you. Uh, And in our worship guide, you can follow along with today's message and some of the notes will be taken. And the page number for 1 Samuel 17 is right there in the worship guide. You can open up that hardcover Bible to that spot. We'll also have the passages up on the screen as well. Uh, Chapter 17 is maybe the longest chapter in the whole book of 1 Samuel because of the story's significance. So we're not going to read every single verse, but we're going to cover the the gist of this whole story today and, and focus on the key verses that really elaborate on what God wants us to learn from this passage today. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our story today. Father, we love you, and And praise you for the privilege and the opportunity we have to gather together as your people uh, and open your word uh, and hear from you, Lord, through your spirit and through your word. And Lord, I pray that that you would use both of those things to open up our hearts and our eyes and our minds to just the goodness and bigness of who you are and how every thing that you've recorded in your word is there for our instruction and it's there to shape us and mold us and make us into the men or women of God that you have called us to be and you have died through your son for us to be. And I ask all this in his name, we pray, amen. You know, there's lots of stories in the Bible, a handful anyways, that are so popular that almost everyone knows or at least has heard something about them, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they're even familiar with the Bible or not, there are certain stories that are so big and have so permeated the culture and the world that almost anyone can recognize something about them. One of them would be like the Exodus story and Moses' story of bringing uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and and all the miracles there, and even movies have been made out of that. Uh, Another one would be like Jesus' teaching of the prodigal son. And even though you may not know all the details of the prodigal son, we even use that as a phrase oftentimes to refer to a a child that's gone astray or anyone that's kind of off wandering around uh, because it's so well known. Well, another one of those stories is the story we're going to look at today, the story of David and Goliath. It's such a big story, such a well-known story, that it's really become a byword in so many different scenarios to talk about an underdog story. You know, we use it in sports analogies, we use it in business world, you use it in all kinds of situations where there's a, a huge giant that seems like they're unconquerable and some smaller character comes in and somehow does the impossible and overcomes and everyone, whether they're a believer or not, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they even believe in the Bible or not, uses that analogy of a David and Goliath story. 
And today we're going to look at just that story. Uh, what's interesting about the story of David and Goliath, one of the most famous ones, is that the typical manner in which we, we tell this story is kind of how people uses it, use it a lot. Is, is that Goliath represents your fears, and they're big, they're intimidating, they're huge. All right, that was a little joke. And, and it's like, how in the world am I going to get past these things? But David comes in, and he's your inspiration, and he's your example. And if you just come in with the faith like David, you can overcome any of your fears. And that's often how we read the story. But I don't know that that's really how the story was intended, nor it's the original author's point of including the story for us today. In fact, not to say that there aren't lessons we can learn from David's life, but I don't know that the lessons are ways that we can learn to overcome our fears. Because I don't believe the, the main point of the story is about how you and I can overcome our fears as much as it is about who it is that overcomes our fears. I don't think the, the story of David and Goliath is about how we can conquer our giants as much as it is about who has conquered the true giant. So as we open up God's word today, my prayer is, is that we take this story and, and like we often do, uh, instead of putting ourselves in the hero circle, we love to uh, relate ourselves to David, that maybe we step back and humbly recognize that when God gave us the story and when he recorded it to us and, and left it for us, it was maybe less about us than we really want to acknowledge and more about him in the God that he is, and the bigness and goodness and graciousness of the God whom we worship. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up, as I mentioned, to 1 Samuel 17. Here's the three things I think we can pull out of this story today that are important for us. The first is this, how we seek to save ourselves. I think the first part of this story tells us something about us and our human nature, and it's how we seek to save ourselves. The second thing we're going to see in this story is how God saves. So this story is about how God saves in contrast to how we often seek to save ourselves. And then the last thing that we're going to see in this story is how we should respond to God's salvation. So three things. How we often seek to save ourselves as humans. What's our nature? How God saves. And then lastly, how do we respond to God's salvation when we see it and when we receive it? So Let's start in verse 1, uh, verse, the first 11 verses, the author gives a whole lot of detail that kind of sets up the story. And, and you know uh, that in 1 Samuel we've been seeing kind of the battles and the wars and the conflict that's going on between Israel and a lot of these different groups that are still in their land. And one of them, one of the key ones was the Philistines. And that's where we find ourselves in the story is they're locked in battle with the Philistines, and verse 1 starts by telling us that, and it says this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. So real important to understand, this was taking place in the land of Israel that belonged to the Israelites, but the Philistines occupied some of it. And they encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion 
named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's a little over nine feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze that's about 125 pounds so he was wearing a coat of armor that was 125 pounds so you get an idea of the size of this guy and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron that's about 15 pounds So just the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Imagine trying to throw something of that size. It says his shield bearer went before him as if he needed another shield of everything he had, right? He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you see that story kind of goes on. David comes in, you hear this thing's repeated again. Goliath keeps coming out. This goes on for like 40 days. In verse 24, we see it kind of repeated how the Israelites responded. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So here's my first point, and it it highlights how we seek to save ourselves as humans, and it's this. When my faith is in my circumstances and ability, I become arrogant or afraid. When my faith is in my circumstances and ability, I become arrogant or afraid. One of the things you see in this in this part of the story is something that should cause you to stop and pause and say, why did the author include so much detail about Goliath? And that's part of how you understand the Old Testament in particular narrative is when an author includes a whole bunch of details about something, obviously there's something there that's of importance. He's spent the time to spell all this out. In fact, one commentator says this about this section. It was pretty interesting. He said, this passage represents the longest description of military attire in the Old Testament. Goliath's physical stature, his armor, his weaponry, and his shield bearer must have made him appear invincible. And that's exactly what you see in the story. Goliath's physical traits, he's like nine feet tall plus. His armor, 125 pounds of armor on him. He's got this 15-pound spear. He's covered from head to toe in, in, in bronze and, and all these different things, which if you know about the times, the Israelites didn't have a whole lot of bronze then. In fact, they had to go to Philistine because the Philistines had all the people that could craft that kind of stuff. So here he is. Not only is he big and tall, and strong, but he's got everything that modern technology would want to have. And that's the appearance that you get from this story, that Goliath is this huge monster that's undefeatable. He has everything that the world would want. The other thing you see is that Goliath is called a champion. 
It's said a couple times throughout this story. In fact, the, the English word champion is really one that we just interpret and put in there. The Hebrew word means a man between men or one who stands between. And it's interesting because something is going on in the story that was unique to the history of the time, and at least for the Israelites. The Israelites were used to typical warfare where the whole army went out and fought against the whole army of the other side. The Philistines, in this case, were bringing a different type of warfare to the table. It was called representative warfare. And it's where each army or each group would send one representative to fight, as you're hearing him call out, and the winner of that fight wins for everyone. So if Goliath wins, then Israel would serve them. And if Israel or someone on their side wins, then the Philistines would all serve Israel. That was something that was kind of foreign to the Israelites. And yet that's exactly what Goliath was saying. Hey, I'm going to stand in between. I'm going to be a man in between. I'm going to represent my people. You send someone to represent your people, and whoever wins takes all. See, what we see in the story is, is kind of what is true in our lives. Goliath represents the world's version of courage. If you're big, if you're strong, if you're intimidating, if you're powerful, if you have all the necessary resources, if you're trained in warfare and you have all the technology, you have everything that the world says you need to conquer your battles, then you're gonna be courageous. But you're also gonna be arrogant because it's a self-confidence or a self-reliance that relies on yourself. And the problem for Israel was not that the Philistines were arrogant based on their situation. The problem for the Israelites was that they were trying to fight the battle in the exact same way. In fact, relying on yourself and all these self is great when you're nine feet tall. When you have all this training, when you have all the technology, it seems great in that moment. But life isn't filled with moments where you always have the resources to conquer the fears that come into your life. You see, what happens when you're suddenly faced with a $50,000 financial debt and you only have a $500 savings account? What do you do in that moment? What happens when you're faced with a terminal illness diagnosis and the best that modern medicine can provide is limited to addressing the situation that you face? What happens when you're in a marriage that's crumbling to pieces and you have absolutely no idea how you put something back together that seems like it is so incredibly broken? You see, being able to save yourself seems really great until you face situations in life that always will come that your resources don't measure up to. And both of these groups were facing things in the exact same way. The difference was the Israelites didn't have the resources to meet the challenge, and so they were cowering in fear. And the Philistines thought they did, and so they were ravaging in, in arrogance and pride. But as the story goes on, we're going to see some differences here. 
See, Israel's situation didn't look good, and and in the midst of this, I'm going to summarize what happens in between. David shows up on the scene. He's bringing some goods to his older three brothers that are fighting in the battle, and when he comes to bring some things to his brothers, as as big brothers often do, they go to little brother, and say, what are you doing here? Come on, why aren't you back tending the sheep? And David says, hey, I was was told to bring some stuff. What's, What's going on? Who's this guy that keeps mocking us? Why isn't anyone standing up to him? And his brother, and all his older brothers often do say, you know, go back and tend the sheep. Come on, you're just a little kid. He basically mocks him for even asking the question. And David just keeps persisting. He eventually gets to Saul, the king, and he's saying, who is this guy that keeps defending us or keeps defying us? And Saul kind of doubts him that David could possibly go out and fight him. So after being mocked by his brothers, after being doubted by Saul, he eventually goes out. Because even though he's mocked by his older brothers, he's doubted by the king, what we saw in the previous chapter was that David was chosen and anointed by God. He was anointed as God's chosen leader. He's not just anyone that shows up and says, hey, I'll go out and do this. He was a uniquely chosen individual. That is, the scripture tells us when he was anointed, the spirit of God rushed upon him and filled him and used him in a very mighty way, unlike anyone else. And that's what we're going to see as we come into the story here in the second part. So here's the, that's the setting. Now we come into verse 43, and David's heading out. He doesn't want Saul's armor. He tries it on. It's awkward. So he takes what he's always had as a shepherd. He takes a few stones with his slingshot, and he takes his staff, and, and he steps out to take on Goliath. And it says in verse 43, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Now, I highlighted some things in here. These are really important to see what is actually said in the text here. It says, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. So he's saying, You come to me with all the confidence that this world can possibly bring. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Here's my second point for you, is is how we seek to be saved is through our own strength and our own abilities, but how God saves is the second point. We see it here, that God provides victory through the faith of his chosen leader to show the world that he is Savior. God provides victory through the faith of his chosen leader to show the world that he is Savior. 
You see, as I mentioned earlier, it's typical of us to read a story like this and place ourselves in the story as the hero. We like to equate ourselves to David, or we like to look at him as our example. Rarely do we go and read a story like this and say, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm more like the Israelites. Or worse yet, maybe I'm a Philistine. Maybe I'm constantly opposing God's people. But when the story is read from our perspective and what we're seeing, we probably relate better and more properly to the Israelites than we do to David. David and Goliath tells me more about God's provision of a courageous king to rescue unfaithful and faithless and fearful you and me from an enemy that seems insurmountable. And that's kind of what this story is all about. We want to make it all about ourselves, but it's really more about God. You see, David steps in as a representative. He steps in as a champion for Israel. He steps in as one who will stand in the middle for them, and he has faith on their behalf. And if David wins, then all of Israel wins. But if David loses, then all of Israel loses. So the whole fate of God's people rests in this chosen leader who is willing to risk his life to defend God's people. Even better, what we see about David's faith is that his faith was in God's promises, not his own presumptions. Look at what it says in Exodus verse 33 or chapter 33 verses 1 and 2 uh, prior to this. These are promises or things that the Israelites would have known at this time. But God said this to Moses as he was taking them out of the, the is out of uh, excuse me Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. He said to Moses depart go up from here from Egypt you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham Isaac and Jacob saying to your offspring I will give it I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites the Amorites the Hittites the Perizzites the Hivites the Jebusites and the Steliarites yeah you got that that's an addition it's not in our English text but it's actually in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy, later on, we see it repeated as they're on the cusp of going into the land. It says this, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Here's what's so awesome about David's character here is David believed God's promises. He risked his life for God's promises, not his own presumptions, not his own desires, not what he wanted in life. He wasn't going, hey, what could I do that would really situate me to be a great king? I'll go fight this guy because that'll make me look good. That's not what David was doing. It is all about God. He was doing this to believe and trust in God's promises and he was willing to submit his own life, risk his own life, to do that. I want to show you a map of this time. You can kind of see geographically what was going on on the next slide. If you'd show, uh, here's a picture of Israel and the different colors show the allotments for each of the tribes. This is what they were supposed to have 
possessed. And each color represents the different 12 tribes of Israel and the land they would have. And so you can see from, uh, from east of the Jordan River in those areas, all the way over to the, the banks of the Mediterranean, all of that was part of the land that God had promised Israel. That's what was theirs. And he was saying, this is yours. I swore to give you this. And if you would just trust me, I would drive out all those nations as you went through it. Now the next slide is going to show you what it looked like in Saul's time. So the green part is the part that Israel occupied at that time. You see Philistia, or Philistia uh, all along the, the coast there, they basically dominated and were occupying that whole territory. You can see how it dips way in in the Jezreel Valley in that area. So they'd occupied even land going way into Israel. And the battle was taking place along those lines. So here's Philistines. They were occupying territory that God said, this belongs to you. I've given it to you, Israel. And so David wasn't just out on some kind of quest to say, I want to conquer the whole world. I want more, I want more, I want more. And God, you are going to give it to me because I'm going to believe in you. That's not what was going on here. There was very little, if all, any presumption at all. David was simply accepting and living within the promises that God had already given them. And he risked his life to pursue God's promises for his people. You see, we all often want David's victories, but what we don't accept is David's submission to God's plan. You see, we want our own pursuits. We create our own plans. We create our own victories, and we say, God, get me this job. Get me in this relationship. Help me be in this group. Give me this kind of prosperity. You know, whatever it is, give, grant me this health. All these things that are our plans, and then we want God to come and confront the fears that we face in getting those things, and we expect him to be our conqueror. But that's not at all what David was doing. David, from the start, was all about God's plan and God's work for his people. And David was willing to risk his life for the sake of God's promises for his people. I wonder if there's not something we could learn about that uh, as we seek to put David's story into place in our own lives. See, we often want God to bless our finances but we're not willing to submit to God's plan and his stewardship of our finances. We're not willing to submit to the fact that he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you. We just want what we want, and we expect God to step in and be the one who provides it. We want God to, to bless and give us victory in our relationships. But submitting to, to God's plan for my relationship? You mean you want me to be sexually pure before I'm married? You want me to avoid sex before marriage and have peer relationships before this? Come on, God. I just want you to give me victory in my relationships. I don't want to submit to your plan. You mean you want me to be faithful in my marriage? You want me to avoid things that might cause damage in our relationship? Come on, God, I want to design my marriage the way I want it to be. I want my wife or my husband to be the person that I want them to be, not the person you want them to be. You're just supposed to come in and make my plans victorious, God. But that's not what David did. David didn't experience this amazing victory simply because he had a big enough faith to get God to do what he wanted him to do. David experienced this victory because he was 100% sold out to God's plan. 
And whether it cost him his life or not, he was willing to risk his life on the fact that God's true to his promises and that he would protect his people. You see, the character of David is not present so much as an example for us to follow and an inspiration to do so. Rather, it really is, is to point us to God's faithful provision to always provide a savior for his people. That even when we blow it, even when we're unfaithful, which is our character, God shows his unending faithfulness to always provide an anointed and chosen leader to fight the battle for you and me. You see, I think the the story of David and Goliath is less about imitation and inspiration as it is about representation and imputation. Let me, let me explain that. Those are big words, but let me explain it with a very simple illustration. I don't even understand what they mean, but I thought it sounded really cool. But I'm going to explain it with a real simple illustration, okay? Inspiration and imitation, that's what we often do. Oh, look at David. Look at the fears. That's what he did. So I'm going to charge myself up with faith, and I'm going to conquer my fears. That's imitation and inspiration. But representation and imputation looks at the story and says, wait a minute. Maybe I'm more like the Israelites And God has brought in a leader who is going to represent me in this battle. And when he does, his victory is imputed or is credited to me just as David's was to Israel. Here's maybe an illustration that might help you. Dak Prescott, if any of you know Dak Prescott, you know know the Cowboys somehow got to work themselves into a a story, right? So Dak's going to walk in or he's maybe already walked into FedEx field uh, to play with the Washington Redskins and, and you might be thinking and look at Dak's story and say man how cool would that be to be the quarterback of the greatest football team of all time right I mean and so you're saying and there's two things you could do to, to say I'd love to be able to just walk into the field like that and hang out with the guys and there's two ways you could do that you could look at Dak as an inspiration and someone to imitate and say, okay, I'm going to follow Dak's workout. I'm going to get on Instagram and follow the Dak workout program, and I'm going to do exactly what he does, and hopefully I'll be able to develop the skills to play football and one day lead the Dallas Cowboys. Now, I don't want to, like, disappoint or hurt anyone here, but as I look out on the crowd, I don't know that there's anyone here that could probably do that no matter how hard you worked, and I'm including myself in that. There's aspects where you're either born with it or you're not. I could do twice the workout that Dak Prescott does, and I will never lead the Cowboys to, uh, to anything. I won't even lead them to the restroom, probably, if that's where they need to go. So imitation and inspiration doesn't work. That's probably not how you're going to get into FedEx Field today. But the other way you could it would be through representation and imputation. See, if I just got to know Dak, and Dak said, hey, Chad, you know what, as they're walking in, hey, Chad's with me. He's coming in with me and all the security would go, okay, he's good, he's good, he's with that. Because what happens there is he's representing me. And his character and his qualities and, and his abilities and everything he brings to the table that let him into that stadium are imputed or credited to me when I'm with him. And that's what this story is about. It's less about inspiration and imitation as it is about representation and imputation. Because you and I are the Israelites. We're cowering. And David 
is simply pointing to a greater David. He's creating, pointing to the, the true David, the great king that all the Bible points to, the person of Jesus Christ, who in the whole Bible, Jesus came and became that defender, became that champion. He became the one that stood in the middle for you and I. When we, as people have done through all time, cower before the fear of sin and death, eternal separation from God. Jesus came, and he was the only one that was able to and was anointed to take the giant of sin and death, true death, eternal separation from God for you and for me. And Jesus didn't just risk his life like David did. David did risk his life. That's a lot of bravery. But David walked out of this battle alive. Jesus didn't just risk his life. When he came down, the father didn't say, you know, I'm going to need you to take a risk. You might have to risk your life. No, he told him, you will have to give your life to take this giant down. The only thing that will ever make it possible for these cowering, faithless Israelites to be welcomed into my kingdom is for someone to represent them against this giant. And that's what Jesus did. And the reason God saves that way, and not through imitation and inspiration, is because when God saves, he wants and he deserves all the credit. And so he doesn't just make the plan, he executes the plan for you and for me so that you can't boast, that I can't boast, that we recognize we bring nothing to the table but our cowering, faithless selves. And when we suddenly see the leader that God provides to win that victory for us, that's what stirs our hearts. That's what opens our eyes to the beauty and goodness of who this God is. And that's what awakens us to this truth. I love how Colossians says this, in a very tangible way in, in the New Testament to kind of take this story and make it a spiritual truth. Follow along with me, it'll come up on the screen. But Colossians 2, 13 and through 15 says this. And it says, and you, and Paul's speaking to you and I, us as an audience, you Christians who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's our giant church. We had this debt, this legal debt that stood against us that nothing we could do could ever eliminate it. You could not forgive the sins that you committed because they weren't committed against you. They were committed against God. And as long as this record stood, you and I were doomed. We had nothing we could accomplish. But it says this, it says he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. This is what Jesus did in his life and his death by triumphing over them in him. See, now we have the courage to fight our smaller battles against sin's presence in our life because he won the great battle over sin's power. Jesus defeated the great power of sin, that its power over us was that we should be separated for all eternity from God. 
That's the fear that should rock your soul to its very bottom. But Jesus took that away so that the smaller battles, the smaller fears of just sin's presence in our life that lingers in this fallen, broken body no longer need to concern us in the same way. That we have the courage now to face those fears, those little battles, because of the great battle. And that's what we see as we look at the text. Let's look at verses 50 through 54. After David has this victory, it says here in verse 50, uh, 50, it said, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Don't you love this? These guys that were cowering for 40 days and were scared to even show their faces. Suddenly Goliath's down. It's like, yeah, gladiator, I'm going, man. Suddenly they're super brave. And they were the biggest cowards just moments ago. It's an awesome story. Don't you guys love this stuff? I mean, all right. So I'm a little weird, but. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim to as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but his armor he put in his tent. Here's my final point for you in this section is God's provided victory gives me courage to live obediently. It's God's provided victory that gives me courage to live obediently. And that's what we see in this story. Once he takes down the big, imposable, undefeatable fear in our lives, it gives us courage to fight the much lesser battles. It gave the Israelites the courage to fight those battles, to remove the presence of sin, which was the presence of these uh, foreign people in their land that God had given them. And once Goliath was gone, they suddenly had the courage to deal with the presence of sin in their land. That's exactly what we see in our own lives. When I live in light of God's victory, his great victory over sin and death, eternal death in my life, I can live courageously in light of the smaller deaths that take place in my life. Deaths like maybe not being as popular as you thought you might want to be. And instead of God making you more popular, maybe you recognize that you can die to your selfish need to be popular. You can conquer that smaller fear and you can rid that selfish sin that we all have from your life because you realize you being accepted by a certain group of people or person is not nearly as significant by you than you being accepted by the God of this universe. That the fact that you are no longer rejected by him for all of eternity gives you such courage that to be rejected by some person on this earth for a period of time is such a small death in comparison that you can fight that battle. You have the courage to move through it, to realize that your health that you thought you would have your whole life but suddenly maybe isn't quite what you thought it would be does not have to be a death that's insurmountable for you because the greater death has been dealt with for you. You can face the fact that this body 
is going to die. This body is going to crumble. And it's not going to crush you infinitely because you know a greater one awaits you. I love how Paul continued this thought in Colossians 3, uh, as we read earlier from chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse 3 as he continues this thought in a great way. He says then in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, meaning if you've trusted Christ, you believed him and trusted in him for this battle, it says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See that representation there? We've died with him. Our lives are hidden in his. It doesn't suddenly say, now, Chad, your life is so great that you're worthy of heaven. No, it says, Chad, your life is hidden in Christ. He represents you when it comes to eternity. And it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then look what Paul concludes from this. The same thing we see in our story. He says then in verse 5, Therefore, or put to death, therefore, because of this truth that our lives are hidden in Christ, that the big issue is determined. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Paul says, you have the courage now to face these things. And the reason we can face these lesser battles against sins present in our life is because Jesus has defeated the giant power of sin's power over us for all of eternity. So when we stop and think, how can we eradicate all injustice in our city? We need to stop and say, you know what? We're not going to eradicate all injustice in our city. God will do that. At some point, he will do that. But you know what? God has done something greater. He has dealt with the giant of injustice in my own life. He has dealt with the giant of injustice and its effect that when I'm unjust, when I live in a world that God created to be unjust or to be just and I'm unjust, I have created a wedge between me and him that I can't ever cover back up. But Jesus took that fear away that my injustice will separate me from God because he died an unjust death to pay for my injustice that's taken care of and what God wants me to do now is start dealing honestly with the injustice that still is present in my life the power of it no longer dominates me but its presence is still there it's why at times you still cheat people it's why at times you gossip about others it's why you judge others before you know the whole truth. It's why you sometimes operate in your businesses the way you do when you know it's not the right way. And what this story is telling us is that since God has dealt with the eternal consequence of that injustice, that you and I are free to courageously deal with 
It's presence that still resides in our own lives. And when we clean out our bodies of this, as Paul says, put it to death, when we cleanse our land of these injustices that still exist in us as Christians, what happens is God plants you as a little piece of his promised land in the midst of a city that desperately needs to see that God is conqueror over every injustice that he can change an unjust person like you and me into someone who has the courage to clean it out of our lives. When, when we can think, oh, we gotta clean out our whole city of greed and it's our job to do all that. Well, God's gonna clean it out, trust me. But when we have stopped and realized that God has conquered the bigger issue with greed, that we think what is his is ours, and that has separated us from all eternity, it has a power over us that would make us cower before him. When we realize that Jesus conquered that giant, then we have the courage to deal with the greed that's still present in our lives. The greed that, that makes us think that everything we have first belongs to us and then to God. The greed that says, well, whenever I get something, the first one I think about is myself. What should I do for myself when I receive this? As opposed to, what would God want me to do with the things he's given me, and how can I serve others with them? You see, when we have the courage to face these lesser giants in our lives because of the courage that Jesus had to face the greater giant, God begins to create in us a demonstration of his power over the greatest giant our world knows. And then the people in our city begin to look and see something different in God's people. Just like the nations around Israel were to see in God's people then. Imagine a church that so lived in light of the power of Jesus conquering of death and sin. That it had the courage to be honest about the presence of sin that still resides in each of us and the courage to face it head on knowing that nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, work together to eradicate these things from our land so that our city might see a God who has conquered the greatest giant of all, sin and death. Let's pray.